Alistair Fulton has always considered himself a mechanic. After all, his job as the vice president and general manager of Semtech's wireless and sensing business is to utilize the tools provided to him in his toolbox and give customers the appropriate solution. The only difference is his toolkit helps millions of people across the world stay connected through a variety of different technologies. Fulton joins IT Visionaries to provide a referendum on the state of the IoT, and he discusses why the biggest challenges facing his community are themselves. Plus, he talks about why LoRa, or long-range wireless solutions, and 5G are no longer seen as competitors, but allies. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we have special guest, Alistair, what's going on? Hi, <laughs> nice to talk to you. Great to have you on the show. We're going to be talking IoT today, uh, which is fun. A lot of really cool things going on at Semtech. Uh, and we're going to get into your background as well. So let's get into it. How'd you get started in technology? That's a good question. Um, I guess I've always been into technology since my first uh, ZX80, which probably dates me horrifically. Um, but, but playing around with that and, and, and later, I think I upgraded to the mighty Dragon 32, uh, which is a about as much power as I think you have in an average wristwatch these days. Um, though my focus was always, even then, was much more on on how uh, those technologies could really affect us as people, um, rather than kind of geeking out on how the technology worked. That was that was much more my brother um, focused on on you know what to do with it. I was more interested in in you know the meaning that it had for us and 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 the, the potential to to really fundamentally change um, human interaction. Um, I think I first really started to understand that transformative effect hands-on um, in the early 90s. And I, I, I started my career um, focusing on product development, which was a bit surprising given that I did an, a degree in economics and law. But in the early 90s, I was working in, in product R&D uh, on what turned out to be one of the first online grocery stores, um, a company called Supermarket Direct back in the UK. And it really, you know, it really was the early days. Uh, the the uh, product uh, catalog was distributed each week on CD-ROM because well, back then the internet didn't really work. Um, the ordering process was by email and it was enormously clunky. Um, but it was really striking to me at the time that, that this technology and the application of these technologies had the potential for creating distributed models of engagement. Um, and driving much more efficiency in that particular example in, in retail go-to-market and distribution um, by removing, if you like, the, the physical boundary um, from the way in which we interact with services, with each other, you know, with businesses. Um, what was also really clear to me was the role of data um, and insight driven from that data in delivering better customer experiences more efficiently. And, and also 
again, right back then, you know, just how difficult generating that data was based on the technology that was available at the time. And in the 90s, you know, we had telematics and machine-to-machine. And, -machine and you know, very similar technologies that, that, as we have today. And actually, I think, and I'll, I'll talk about this, I think, as we, as we go on, um, it's still really difficult. It's still too difficult to generate data. The toolkits that we have at our disposal for what we do with that data have changed dramatically. But the very process of, of transporting data from A to B is, is still harder than it should be. And that's, that's something we're focused on very much at, at Semtech. It was also um, really clear that it wasn't really the technology that was the problem, actually. It wasn't the strengths or the limits of the technology. But it was how you know, we shape that technology to do what we need and, and the interpretation and translation of that need into technical requirements was, was then, as now, I think, a real missing link um, and, and personally something that I've always found to be fascinating. It, that, that process of determining and understanding need and translating it into execution, I think, is one of the hardest things. Um, I mean, I'd like to say at that point, I kind of had this, this road to Damascus moment and decided to devote my career to technology, et cetera. Um, but I, I generally don't think careers are planned that way, at least, at least mine wasn't. Um, I was much more you know, fortunate to have a, a series of exciting challenges that came my way. Um, and that really started actually with, with an opportunity to start shaping the main delivery channel I saw in the 90s for these new experiences, that being the cell phone. And, and so from a, an early days in, in, in product R&D on the business side, I moved into the world of cell phone when I joined O2. So flash forward to today, tell me a little bit about your current role at Semtech. So I lead a, a, a fairly diverse business unit within Semtech and, and Semtech as a company is, is quite unique actually. It's, it's a 60 year old um, semiconductor company that has through those 60 years, really established a position of R&D-led strength. You know, we, we focus on markets where there are some difficult technical challenges to solve, just the core problem is difficult, or the way in which you solve that problem within power constraints. You know, it, it's a challenging combination. Um, my, my, the business that I'm responsible for spans a couple of different areas, you know, which are quite different. On the one side, I have a, a, a high rail business. So we, we manufacture components for aeronautics and defense, etc. Simple components that are designed to last for 20, 30 years in life. Uh, we have a power business that's focused on energy recycling and wireless charging, um, which is very relevant in the IoT space, uh, particularly uh, given the number of sensors that are battery powered. There's a sensing business, um, which is focused more on, on mobile phones and um, wearables. There's a part of the business which is focused on capacitive touch, so for earbuds and things that don't have a graphical user interface that rely on touch as the primary means of communication. That's a, an area that we cover too. The, the, probably the main focus um, of our R&D activity um, is around LoRa. And LoRa is a, a technology that was invented um, by uh, actually a company that we acquired to solve for a very specific set of challenges in distributed sensor networks. That being the need for a highly secure, um, long-range, 
uh, easy to deploy, highly efficient, uh, low power um, way of connecting sensors around us. And the reason that those characteristics are all so important is as we move toward, I, I think, the promise of the IoT, which is the ability to understand kind of everything, actually, to, to generate data from each part of a process and use that data to uh, drive a better set of decisions, mostly to do with resource utilization. Um, doing that, from experience, is really hard um, with a lot of the technologies that are available today because they're too expensive or they're too hard to deploy, you know, they cost too much in terms of power. And so the focus of our business really is on, on LoRa and taking what is a, a very strong technical solution and shaping it to the needs of the market and providing a set of tools that people building IoT applications can use. And that means not um, uh, having to rely upon deep you know, embedded hardware development skills but but that you can approach this from the perspective of a cloud developer and actually utilize this technology in, in your solution. So that part of the business really has three components that together constitute the product. That's hardware, so the actual silicon design itself, um, the software that abstracts from some of the underlying hardware complexity, and then services that... Uh, make the development process simpler or easier or quicker. So that's the primary focus. And we're, we're lucky enough to be part of a broader ecosystem um, around LoRaWAN, which is the data protocol that runs on top of LoRa, the physical layer. And that's an, uh, run through an organization called the LoRa Alliance um, that we obviously spend a lot of time um, working with and supporting. Um, to enable a broader ecosystem of folks building networks using LoRa, building solutions using LoRa, etc. And so how does LoRa compare to something like 5G? Um, a good question. I mean, it, it, I, I look at this, this world of, of IoT and I see the need for a variety of different tools. Um, if you look at any comprehensive IoT solution, um, and, and you could swap IoT for M2M -M and telematics, you know, just as well, because it's, they're essentially targeting the same set of problems. You've got a variety of different needs. There are some, taking a manufacturing process, for example, there are parts of your manufacturing process where the data type that you're generating is, is very high bandwidth, or the situation that you're trying to monitor and react to is um, near real time. And I say near real time rather than absolute real time, because those of those of your audience who've been in the space, you know, will understand the difference between those two things. But being able to, for example, understand um, from a worker safety perspective whether one of your workers has his or her arm trapped in a piece of machinery, very often that's something you can only analyse through video, um, and you need to be able to react really quickly and stop the machine. Um, and for those sorts of scenarios, you need something like 5G. You need a, you need a high bandwidth, high dependency um, solution that you don't really care so much about the power and you don't really care so much about the cost. But for everything else in your production chain, you've got some assets that you can monitor using um, existing techniques, so using SCADA systems, for example. But you have a lot more um, assets moving through that production process 
and and these are smaller items the product perhaps um where a wired connection is impossible because it's moving um a wireless connection needs to be able to survive on a battery for years in some instances because you track that product through the production cycle into the warehouse into your supply chain and ultimately to your customer um and that indoor-outdoor component requires a technology that works in both areas. If you're simply focusing on product inside the environment, then sometimes Wi-Fi is good, sometimes Bluetooth is good. But really overall, I think the comparison between LoRa and other technologies is yeah, LoRa does a specific set of things really well, but it's a complement to other technologies that are used. And, and I actually think one of the mistakes that, that we collectively as an IoT system have made is not to fully appreciate the implications of, of that, not to fully appreciate that these tools are parts of a toolkit and they must work together in order to do what developers and, and ultimately the customers of those developers uh, want and need. So uh, I think I hope that answers your question. It, I, I, so I don't so much see a difference, I see much more of a complement and how these bits fit together to comprise a total solution is the key. Yeah, that's that's a great breakdown um, because I think that that uh, that is one of the key questions, right? It's like how do all of these, uh, you know, interoperate with each other? How do all these things add to uh, the increased need for um, for compute with IoT and and edge and all that stuff? Um, so I, I'm curious. I I know you wrote a uh, you wrote an article last year about the city of Calgary um, using Laura. Maybe you could like walk through an example like that um, of, of how this could work in practice. Calgary is a, a good example of, of what we see, you know, more broadly, which is in, in, in a smart city environment, one of the challenges is really it's generating data and being able to integrate that data into a single backend through multiple sources and being able to rapidly deploy a network that covers the kind of everything else, you know, the everything else that you, you can't afford to connect, you know, over cellular or for which cellular isn't a good technical fit, Wi-Fi doesn't work, Bluetooth doesn't work. So what Calgary did was really lay down network infrastructure that was then used to support a variety of different use cases. And in, in the case of a city, you know, those use cases range from things like trash collection, you know, the maintenance of the physical environment for which monitoring and understanding the nature of that physical environment and do you need to go and clean it up is the main driver of cost. If, if you can understand what's happening well enough and tailor your reaction, you save an enormous amount of cost. And, and that's very much the angle for that type of application. All the way through to more, um, I would say, environmental concerns around the consumption of resource, um, energy, water, etc. Up to the other end of the scale, which is much more about visitor experience, if you like, the experience of, of individuals living within that built environment. And that can be to do with uh, access to services. Um, it can be to do with um, uh, consumption of resources like parking spaces. And actually now um, it, it can be increasingly to do with things um, related to our, our, our current circumstance with COVID-19, you know, tools that help us um, both monitor environments for footfall to make sure that, you know, we're maintaining a level of, of cleanliness um, through to uh, tools that can assist in social distancing, um, uh, capacity management, 
as we start to go through this process of opening up the world around us. And I think increasingly cities, Los Angeles is a great example of this as well. Increasingly cities are seeing, you know, their role as being the managers of that environment, that their responsibility as a city to the businesses that reside within that city is to provide you know, tools and services which facilitate the experience of, of, of visitors, of, of people you know, coming into those areas and, and, and spending money and, and, and you know, spending their time. Um, so Calgary, I think, was, was earlier perhaps than others in realizing their responsibility and the, and the opportunity to improve um, the lives of, of city residents and visitors alike. But we're seeing that same um, uh, realization, I think, growing um, and is and being triggered, honestly, by by the demands um, placed on on cities by COVID nineteen response. Yeah, I want to go into that a little bit. So, how how could something like Laura help with uh, with COVID nineteen? Well, we're seeing. A, a, I mean, I think the our perspective on our ecosystem it is is worth mentioning. I mean, we see our job as Semtech, as providing tools. You know, we make things that make it easier for other people to go and do incredibly innovative things. And, I, I, and the reason I mention that is I think it's, it's, it's very important to maintain, you know, humility or understanding of place. Um, for one very simple reason, IoT is littered with examples of companies trying to build end-to-end solutions, you know, where, where they're saying to customers, oh, this is great, you know, all you have to do is stay on my island and everything's going to work fine. It's all going to work, just in, it's going to interact perfectly. I think COVID-19 yeah, really puts into sharp contrast how, that, uh, how broken that approach is. Because in COVID-19, it is the ability to understand how different systems interact that's critical to, to, to figuring out, you know, how to minimize risk. How to, so what we've seen our ecosystem doing is coming up with a whole range of different innovative solutions. The first wave um, in response to the onset of, of COVID at the beginning of this year very much drew on existing um, products. It takes a while to build functioning sensors um, after all. Um, and so we saw the application of asset tracking um, devices to people, um, to, to assets in in hospitals to respirators. We saw the application of um, simple push button triggers to um, uh, field hospital deployments to give um, patients a button that they could press that, that didn't require any physical you know, cabling infrastructure that could be delivered from one gateway deployed you know, in, in, in the near you know, vicinity. And we've also started to see you know, more tailored approaches to COVID-19 using um, sometimes 2.4 um, uh, technologies to determine range, sometimes using Bluetooth and Wi-Fi within that space, um, and then using backhaul over LoRaWAN, the network, to a central place. And those devices really would allow me uh, and, and you, you know, to determine, well, if Alistair uh, was diagnosed, was he in close enough vicinity to Ian, um, and if so, when, um, to determine whether or not you, are, you have been exposed and need to self-quarantine. And those devices tend to be a little bit more sophisticated in nature, um, but we're seeing very, very significant interest. We're using them ourselves. 
in, in, in all honesty, as we open our own facilities and our own factories, we're implementing these solutions. So as, as responsible employers, we can make sure that we're, we're doing what we need to protect folks. The kind of, it goes deeper into um, the world of monitoring and understanding um, healthcare at a wider scale. So there are a number of companies developing wearable products that use the low power characteristics of LoRa and, and either a small coin cell or a printed battery to produce a, a, essentially a Band-Aid that comes with sensors. Now, the sensors vary from respiration rate, heart rate, et cetera. There are varying data points that you can utilize to determine, is Ian about to get sick? Is Ian sick? Or is Ian in recovery? Um, and I'm really excited about that area because, as I said, that opens up a much broader area than the immediate challenge created by COVID-19. And again, it comes back to better utilization of resources and, and ultimately reducing and managing the, the impact that, that we have on the environment. Because if I can use healthcare that's proportionate to my physical well-being and I take away the guesswork of, do I feel ill or do I not feel ill? You know, making data-driven decisions uh, is, is, to my mind at least, the best way of driving greater efficiency in society and the utilization of scarce resources. And right now in COVID-19, obviously we have a very specific set of challenges as a human race to address, and those technologies are, are proving useful there. But I do think there's a longer-term um, need as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think that, you know, having certain types of redundancies is obviously important. Um, and I think, you know, to your point earlier with smart cities uh, or about cities and about, you know, kind of the rise of, of smart cities like Calgary trying to figure out how to how to do some of these things. Um, you know, it's important for the stakeholders to like look at all of the options on the table. And I think that, you know, as you mentioned, kind of the, hey, we're just going to do this end to end uh, or we're going to do X, Y, Z. And then supply chains get messed up or this happens or this happens. And there's just all sorts of complexity that goes into it. Um, and so it's clearly, you know, looking looking at the problem set from a holistic view is, is more important. Um, and I think it's great to see, you know, cities and companies starting, uh, to look at that because, because of the, you know, extra pressure, but it seems like there will be kind of a new, a new risk management profile that I think, um, you know, leaders look at going forward to figure that stuff out. Yeah. And I do, I do think the thing, the examples like Calgary, yeah, one of the challenges in IOT is, is this, the sheer cacophony of alternate solutions. And, and having spent most of my career actually in the solution development space and the platform development space, yeah, choice is just, it, it's just an insane amount of choice. And, and once you filter through, you know, the, the PowerPoint from the real, um, and, and last time I checked, PowerPoint isn't an executable. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's maybe not as close to, to, to production as it might be. It's phenomenally difficult to, to have confidence that you're making the right set of choices. If you add to that the, the, I think, somewhat cynical and somewhat deliberate attempt to design independency that you see in a lot of solutions, it becomes a very, very difficult decision for anyone to make. And for a municipal authority, a, a city responsible for spending residents' money, it becomes a near impossible challenge. I think um, examples like, and we focus on, on real world examples, you know, specifically for that reason, because 
if you're a city manager, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And if you can't look at someone else solving a set of problems with a set of, t- of technologies and you can't observe those technologies, you know, working together um, and being easy to support, etc., that's a very um, quick way of understanding whether or not something's real. And so we, we tend to, to shine a spotlight on, on cities like Calgary and you know, numerous applications just to say, hey, you know, look, here's an example of how someone did this, how they solved the problem. Because if you don't do that, number one problem in IoT is the business case. You know, the technology, technology does what you make it to do in the end of the day. And there's, there's plenty of options and plenty of choices. The struggle in IoT is very often, well, how much, how much is it going to cost me to do it? And how much money am I going to save? How much resource am I going to save? What impact am I going to have on people's lives? And being able to look at an example is the surest way to quickly get to understanding, well, for my city, you know, what could I do? How, how could I use these solutions to address the needs of my residents? Yeah, and like you said, it, you know, it's a lot of the things that um, you know, like water and, and like water usage and, and different sort of things. You, know, you mentioned in the article... Uh, that you wrote about, uh, you know, a golf course, things like that. Like there's so many different uses and use cases um, to be able to to leverage something like Laura um, that, you know, I, I'm sure it's about kind of like the uh, the education of, of just learning what the different use cases are in some cases, right? I, I do think in municipal authorities, you know, you've got to have confidence that you're spending your taxpayers' money wisely and you've got to know that something's going to be deliberate. And, and the, 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 the path to, of IoT is littered with failed projects. And, and you know, there isn't much more, import, more important than water, actually, to take that example. You know, in the future, the scarcity that we will face as a human race is going to be water, is going to be one of the main raw materials that the, the, the lack of which will very negatively impact a significant part of, of, of humanity. And when you look at uses of water, uh, golf courses and almond trees, and you know, we see very extensive use of LoRa in those agricultural situations because I've got 20,000 almond trees to monitor and I need to be able to deploy a solution that I can, you know, I can, I can give to, to my, my plantation manager and he or she can go and drop a sensor by each trip. I need something that can be deployed easily, quickly, you know, and effic- effectively that I can have confidence in before I move forward. And as I said, that, that comes back to the business case. Because if in the cost column of the business case, you have a big question mark, in the timeline column, you have a big question mark, it's not a business case. So um, there's, a, there's a real, I think, need there to help show the way and show, show what's possible. Yeah, there's a there's a great infographic um, on uh, on the site if people go to semtech.com slash Laura um, that kind of has the uh, the X and Y axis where it says bandwidth on one side and range on the other, and it kind of shows that uh, like where Laura fits in um, compared to Wi-Fi uh, and cellular. Um, but like you said, it's about a business case, right? It's about trying to figure out the the low cost option to be able to do you know what you need done. Yes, and, I, and I've always maintained, which is maybe ironic for someone who's spent their life in technology, technology is the easy part. You, 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 can, you can come up with a technical solution to a problem. The difficulty is understanding that problem and, and being able to translate understanding of that problem into a solution. 
the world is the world is i don't i won't say it's populated by by brilliant engineers but there's quite a lot of brilliant engineers in in, in the world we're lucky to, to enough to have many of them we are working in Centec, but it's the translation it's the understanding of the problem and being able to determine well how do i fix this in the best way um that's that's very often the struggle so you mentioned the lore alliance um but you know and i'm curious what is kind of like the state of Laura? Where, where what does the future look like? Um, how how much use is happening right now, um, and then where are we going? It's I mean in many ways we're we're just at the very beginning, um, and and you know that might sound you know um, a bit odd given how quickly the ecosystem around Laura has grown, and and honestly one of the things I I noticed first when looking into that ecosystem from the outside. Um, I, I uh, had come across Laura as a solution that uh, we used whilst I was at Hitachi for, for a particular install. Um, it was just how big the ecosystem was in such a short period of time. Laura's been available for five or so years as a technology, and the ecosystem is 500 uh, plus companies. And, and you know, numbers are numbers, but but you know, names are more interesting. You know, you'd expect to see in a in a relatively early stage technology you know, lots of, of light and heat um, in the startup space and, and newer companies. And for sure, we have plenty of, of innovative companies um, working within the alliance and, and inventing all manner of things. The, the, the range is, is stunning. But we also have um, a, a number of very large um, companies moving into the, to the ecosystem to take advantage of the benefits of law and, and it's the, the, the Googles and the, the, the Amazons and the Intels and the Cisco's of this world um, moving in as well. So, so from, a, from a vibrancy point of view, um, there's a great deal of energy around the technology. Uh, and again, going back to what I said earlier about us being the provider of tools, you know, our job is to provide tools and, and stand back and watch what folks do with those tools and then figure out what we do next. So that energy is, is really very important to drive our own innovation. More broadly, um, as a network technology, you know, to a degree, it's about network availability. Uh, and we've now got to a point where I think there's about 140 um, operators globally. And we've got, we've got networks in uh, 90 to 100 countries at this point. And starting to see really wide area public network coverage in some key geographies in, in Europe and, and um, Asia and, and starting to be in the US as well. One of the things about LoRa, and so, so that level of energy is, is, is also very encouraging because if I don't have to install a network, then you know, great, my, my, my sensor just works. You know, my dog tracker just works. My, my on-body health sensor just works. But there's also a great deal of energy um, sparked around LoRa's private deployment model um, one of the things that, that that one of the characteristics of LoRa is it, it uses the ISM band it uses the industrial scientific and medical band which means that unlike cellular operator to be a LoRa, LoRaWAN operator you don't need to buy spectrum what you do is you need to buy a gateway you plug a gateway in and then you're a network operator straight away and it's that flexibility that's driven really wide-scale um, deployment of of private networks um, that are factory level or city level or even home level networks um, that connect to a back end. And the introduction of roaming that we've, we've been working on with the ecosystem over the course of the last few months kind of really starts to, to knit together 
all of those virtual networks um, uh, into one whole. So private, public, doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a LoRaWAN network, and I can, provided that I can roam from network to network, it becomes a seamless whole. So, I mean, overall, in answer to your question, we've got we've made a massive amount of progress in five years, but I still think it's just the beginning. Um, we've got 140, 130, 40 million endpoints deployed, just the beginning um, as far as the overall opportunity of, of IoT is concerned. One of the reasons I say that is also that's what we've managed to do with a, with a set of products, not just LoRa, but more broadly in an IoT, a set of products that were actually quite hard to use. And you're not an embedded developer and you're not used to you know, writing tiny, tiny bits of code that work efficiently on, on tiny little microcontrollers. If you're a, a cloud developer, then you were kind of out of luck. Um, what we've been doing in Semtech over the course of the last couple of years is really focusing on that problem and saying, how do we make this great technology accessible to someone who is starting in the cloud, starting with a cloud platform um, and starting to build an application on top? And so what, as we start to address that, and we've, we've recently released a, a product called Laura Edge, which is really our first integrated hardware software and services product designed to meet the needs of a, of a non-embedded developer. As we start down that path, the world um, opens up. Um, and that's when I think the real potential of the IoT is going to start to be realized. When you know, a computer science college graduate, fluent in Python, not much else, can take you know, networking and, and, and sensor tools and use them easily to form part of a solution. I think that's when we really unlock the potential here. Any other things that you're uh, particularly excited about going forward? Lynn will tell you I'm excited about a lot of things. <laughs> um, I think the main thing, honestly, is, is the first thing that attracted me to IoT. And it, and it sounds really simplistic, but you know, in the old world, my success, you know, ha- however I define it as a business, better product, more customers, more revenue, more margin, you know, most of that boils down to more from less. It means consuming less of something to generate more value for those you know, on the receiving end. And that's fundamental to, the, to our future, I think, as a human race, um, which sounds a very grand and all-encompassing statement, but it is. I think you know, if you look at how human beings are interacting with this finite pool of resources that we have, we're not doing that in an efficient way. And that's going to run out sometime soon. The promise of IoT to me has always been the ability to replace guesswork in that equation. Because historically, we've kind of been guessing. You know, if I do it this way, maybe I'm going to use less oil or maybe I'm going to use less water. The promise of the IoT is to replace that guesswork with data to make better decisions about everything. That's what really excites me. And so when I come across solutions in the ecosystem, um, and not just the law ecosystem, but the IoT in general, where you think, wow, that is a real smart way of, of solving that particular problem. That's a real smart way of using information to determine you know, what's happening. And it, it, it ranges from, from you know, our ecosystem partners who drill holes in the horns of rhinos and, and, and put trackers in the horns of rhinos and use the data generated 
to determine whether the rhino is distressed and therefore is being you know, chased by a poacher. I mean, really innovative solutions that, you know, in that yeah. particular example, I mean, if you're a rhino, that matters a lot um, to much broader yeah. solutions where, you know, it's everything uh, and, and, and water management systems, energy management systems. Um, I think that's a, a, a just hugely exciting to see the innovation there. Yeah, it's just really exciting to see the physical world um, kind of give us those those secrets that are out there. I think that that's one of the things that um, for so long we just didn't really have enough, um, you know, devices or we didn't have, you know, the cameras or we didn't have, um, you know, the technologies to be able to figure out some of these things. But um to understand the physical world better, like you said, I love how you put it, um, to stop doing the guesswork and actually start getting to the answers is super exciting. Mm. Definitely matters for the rhinos, that's for sure. It does. If you're a rhino, that's a big tip. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Awesome. Well, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform. You can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more about the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, salesforce.com slash platform. Lightning round questions, Alistair, are you ready? Let's go. Yes, I'm ready. Far away. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? (laughs) That is a great question. Uh, My wife would say find my iPhone. I would probably say, um, sadly, Zoom. It says a lot, but probably Zoom. What is a hobby or habit that you picked up in uh, Shelter in Place? I would say a habit that I revisited and a hobby I revisited, making pasta. So I make pasta from from scratch and I bake things. And and I think my waistline um, speaks to the impact of that. (laughs) If you weren't in this job, what's something else you might be doing? I would be a dive instructor. There you go. What is your best advice for a first-time GM? Focus on what your customers are trying to solve for and, and filter out the noise that uh, any organization inevitably has. If you focus on, on what your end customer is trying to do and drive everything from that understanding, you won't go far wrong. And the other thing I would say is assume that pretty much everything you think is wrong um, and, and work to build systems that allow you to identify how you're wrong and what you need to do about it. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Dad, can I clean my room by my kids? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Awesome. Well, Alistair, this has been great. Thanks for stopping by. Well, you're welcome. Thanks very much, Ian. Pleasure to talk to you. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. <laughs>